Welcome to the Perfect Pitch podcast series. This is a unique insight behind the scenes of the classical music industry and the inspiring people and stories of their lives. I'm Kat Alder and I hope you enjoy. In this first ever episode, I talk to my dad. Maybe I should talk to him more often. But he is like a good cigar, I'm being told by him. He smokes more than I do. So there are a lot of stories to tell. Uh, he's a 10-time Grammy-winning recording producer, so the list is endless. Claudio Bardo, Jonas Kaufmann, Anna Nantrepko, Lang Lang, Maurizio Pellini, Emerson String Quartet, Gustavo Dudamel, Maria Joao Pires. And his humble beginnings were singing in Cats the Musical, and he's the perfect entry to a podcast that is called Perfect Pitch. His hearing is what earns him a living, and his pitch is pretty perfect if you ask me. And I always kind of wondered what he actually does. So let's start with a formidable Chris Alder, and I hope you enjoy. I'm sat in the Austrian Alps with a 10-time Grammy-winning recording producer called Chris Alder, who firstly also won a Latin Grammy, not just classical music. Ah. You point me out, so that's almost classical. Almost classical. Yeah, I think the reason it was Latin was because it had Placido Domingo. It was recorded in Spain with the Spanish orchestra, with the Spanish conductor. Um, but it has it, a different colour on your grand piano, so it's worth pointing out. Yes, the base of it is red. It yeah. has the same golden Grammy on top, but it has a red base. Ah, I know that because he's also my father, esteemed ah. father, and someone I looked up to. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> and um, yes, I thought it'd be interesting to know about the industry of the recording producer and what that brings with it. Mm. So, Dad, would you mind doing me a little party pitch, the fun one and the professional one? Well, the fun one is the professional one. No, I mean, if someone asks me, what do I do for a living? I say, I'm a music producer. And that gets them all excited. And they kind of, oh, you know, uh, so you go, you know, you watch on, uh, you know, the new top star shows on TV and stuff. And I say, no, no, I do classical music. Uh, which normally, then they go off and talk to someone interesting, like, you know, a teacher or something. And uh, no, but then... Uh, If they are interested, then they ask, well, what does that involve? And I say to them, uh, well, I'm the guy in a classical music production who sits there listening. Uh, I'm a kind of parasite, I normally say. You know, I don't actually do anything. I just listen. Um, I listen to the performances of the artists as they record, and I tell them what I think they could do better or what they need to do again because there are mistakes. Um... You know, that kind of thing. And, and then if they really get into it, they say, they say, well, where do you, do they come to your home to record? And then I have to explain for classical music, we go to where they perform on the whole because you can't get an orchestra in my sitting room um, or a grand, you know, a, a, someone, a big one of these big pianists like Lang Lang or Maurizio Pellini um, or, uh, you know, those kind of people who I produce. Uh, they make a big sound, and so you need a big hall. So you tend to end up, you know, in a concert hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if they want to go into depth about what it is, then I tell them, well, they I mean, they normally say, well, that sounds like a pretty cushy job. And I, I normally say, yes, well, in a way it is. Um, it's very easy to listen and criticise. The main problem about the job is it doesn't really help an artist just to be criticised all the time. First of all, you can you know, dampen the atmosphere a bit. 
And normally the kind of artists I've been lucky enough to work with, they don't make any mistakes or, you know, they're not mm. dropping notes and stuff. In fact, some of the artists, I mean, Polini, sometimes you go, you have a week of recording with him and you really can only think of three mistakes he made. <laughs> um, so it's not a question of that. There is a bookkeeping side of our job, which is, if you like, the easy part of the job, which is to make sure at some stage when you've finished... You've recorded all you planned to record, nothing's missing, and all, all the music was right, and there were no mistakes. Mm. Um, but that part of the job, more or less any halfway uh, intelligent and musical music student could do, someone who mm. can read a score, and uh, especially with normal classical music rather than more modern demanding pieces. Um, that's the easy part. The more difficult part is actually talking about what they're trying to achieve, uh, criticizing them where you think things aren't working and even yeah. with great artists because you know even a great artist has a certain I mean in the good sense he has a routine a way he plays something uh, or he has played it in concert the last year before he comes to record it perhaps um, and sometimes you say why are you you know is this deliberate you're getting slow here it's not marked and it, it doesn't sound I'm mean, some with less of Artists sometimes they get slower because it gets more difficult and they have to slow down. And mm. of course, that that's no good reason, is it? Um, <laughs> so some of it is you're 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 asking them. It doesn't say Ritardando here get slower here. It says it five bars later, but you're getting slower here. Is that deliberate? And if it's deliberate, then that's the end of that conversation. Mm. I just want to point out to them what's in the music in case they're forgotten because they normally uh, play from memory. Mm. Um, and I want to know, and that's also something I'm asked uh, to do by them, is to point out anything that maybe they've just gone to bad habits or I don't think works. Mm. How much preparational work goes into that? So maybe less now that you've done a lot of the recordings, but when you started off? Well, there are certain things... Well, I remember my first recordings, um, my very first recording actually was with the great British soprano Margaret Price. Price and her dog, because she always travelled with the dog, uh, and someone always had to take the dog for a walk, and I tried to make sure it wasn't me, so I send someone off. Um, and Jeffrey Parsons on the piano, I remember. Um, and that was a little or lesser known Verdi songs. He wrote piano songs for voice with piano when he was young, and uh, I didn't know them. Uh, so I did prepare, though I don't think there were many recordings, at least there weren't recordings of all of them, so I, I actually had to sit down at the piano and play them through and mm. get to know them. Um, would you do that in a similar way that a mu well, an artist would prepare for the recording by learning the score properly, or do you think it's a quicker...? Well, the, the artist does a lot more work than I have to do, um, because he has to also think about... I mean, the artist actually has to think there's a physical side to it. For example, the singer has to prepare something and sing it many times, mm. even if it's not in a concert. I don't know. I don't think she'd done these Verdi songs, at least most of them in concert, because most 
concert promoters wouldn't want, you know, youthful works by that kind of repertoire. Mm. Um, But they have to prepare it a lot physically simply because the, the vocal organ, you have to, it has to become second nature. It's like a pianist will rehearse something many times simply that they have muscle memory mm. they don't mm. have to think all the time and and also they, it's the only way to get rid of mistakes on a mm. piano is just to play it and play it and play it mm. but um and then the next recordings was a cycle of schubert symphonies with claudio bardo and the chamber orchestra of europe and i remember i was quite excited by that because it was my first big recording after this margaret mm. price one holiday just beforehand and I remember spending two weeks on the beach with a Walkman, a cassette player (laughs) and recordings from various people and listening to them and marking in the score and you know oh here they're not very complicated scores you know it's not Stockhausen Um, and I remember during the recording the first sessions I I said to the flute player you know, do you have to breathe there? Because after all, it is phrased over the, that line. I'm nothing, you know, it's not a rocket science. And he kind of looked at me and said, oh, you really do know the score, don't you? <laughs> so, I mean, the conductor knows it much better than I have to know it. And yeah. he has, I say, the conductor too has to think very much about mm. what he wants to achieve, what he wants to hear, what is more important, what is less important. Mm. If you have a particular opinion about a piece of repertoire, would you emphasise that to the artist? So if you felt, for example, for example, during a recording, a different type of phrasing or different way of playing that particular section would make sense or more sense than the, how they're playing it, would you...? Well, we're getting on dangerous territory there oh. because... No, no, I mean, it's just... In a sense, it's the... You know, most people would say the artist should have a clear idea of what they're trying to do mm. um, and it's not my job to tell them anything. True. But then I wonder with the ones where you are helping them as a first recording, for example, or they're oh, well, that might be different. unknown repertoire. There are certain tricks also. I mean, of course, you can tell a, you know, a singer, for example, who's never made recordings before, you know, singers want to sing all the time, especially if they're with an orchestra. They think it's cowardly to stop mm. and leave out a phrase, a difficult phrase, or they're getting tired. So... Mm. The great singers who are used to recording, Placido Domingo will sing an aria and leave out a couple of phrases just Mm. to collect energy from the next phrase. Then he'll say, "Okay, let's do it again. And then he'll sing it again, Mm. leaving out some phrases. And after two or three takes, he says, "Okay, we're finished. And you realise, yes, he's done everything. Oh, interesting. No, but talking about what you're really asking is, of course, we do talk about interpretation um, the most difficult thing I've found to record is something I really love, mm. you know, 
you know, I was brought up on, on the great recordings of the four last songs mm. by Richard Strauss. And with the, there are wonderful recordings with Lucia Pop. And there's a very famous one with, with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. And I particularly liked one with Carrie Anne and Gundelil Janowitz. So I actually had a recording then with um, Abado in Berlin with uh, Carita Matula. And she didn't sing it and Abado didn't conduct it the kind of way... I, you know, I, you I knew it, it and I liked you it. You liked it, yeah. Um, and you normally like things you know, if mm. you know what I mean. Familiarity is, is a nice, comfortable corner. And um, so I was kind of quite shocked and I felt I should criticise all kinds of things. Oh, you could take more time here and this and that and the other. And then I thought, I can't, you know, this is just my habit speaking mm. or would be. So... And that's our job as a recording producer is the things, you know, I, I did, of course, criticise some things and say, Claudia, I, you know, you're starting to get a bit loud here with the orchestra. Uh, you're starting to cover her here. Can you wait a little bit with the crescendo because mm. she's still low there? I mean, they're things that he would have heard if he'd come to the control room mm. where he's standing, the singer's standing just by him. It's difficult for him to always know what's actually coming over on the microphone. Mm. But there I thought I really have to be careful, and that's often the case with pieces you know well, and if it's a, a Beethoven sonata I've recorded with Maurizio Pellini and with uh, Maria Joapires or someone else, and I then have a, another young uh, or a young pianist, of course there's the tendency to kind of remember those maybe great recordings you've mm. done, and you want to somehow reproduce that. But mm. that's not really my job. Mm. I mean, I'll, my job is to try and put myself into the artist's head, if you like, and tell him what you're trying to do here is working well. That's great. Here, don't you know, don't you want to... I think you're trying to do this and it's not really working. Mm. Uh, mm. And I will come up with suggestions. Mm. Um, and they'll often ask me, you know, they'll say, yeah, I like to get very slow here, but do you think it would be irritating? Because recordings, if you listen to them, second mm. time and you might say to yourself, oh this is that place where he got he gets very slow and the first time it might be slightly charming but the second time you may say oh god oh and that place is coming up where he suddenly does that flamboyant accelerando mm. which might be fun in the concert but on repeated listening might be irritating mm. Mm. so recordings are difficult because you can listen to them again and some things become mannerisms on the other hand they should have the feel of a performance mm. and not something that has been, if you like, produced to death. Yeah. You know, where everything is perfect, perfect and everything's yeah. in place and there's none of this discovery going mm. on. Uh, the great artists do seem to have that ability, in my experience, is that even something they've played 20 years and they said, I'm finally going to get round to recording it now, they still find something fresh. Mm. I mean, you know, the really good artists don't sound like they've, you know, that it's just uh, something they've played like this for the last 20 years, and that's how they play it. Mm. Do you think that's also why Polini wants to go back to a repertoire he's played before? No, no, no. I mean, it, I think, no, no, artists, of course, these great works, like Chopin, for, or any of the piano sonatas, the three piano sonatas by Chopin, uh, which he's just, I've just come from sessions where he was recording the third sonata, which he's recorded before. Um... And he's talking about doing the Hammerklavier again, the Beethoven Sonata. Those are works that he recorded, the Hammerklavier, I think, 40 years ago. And you can understand an artist. They always think, first of all, that they have something new to say about it, even mm. compared to their previous recording. And these great works do have 
endless fascination. And there's always something mm. new to discover in them, mm. even for the artists. And and in fact, with the Bardo, um, when we did the Beethoven cycle in Berlin, he had done a previous Beethoven cycle in Vienna, uh, which I didn't produce. Um, that was with his previous producer. And I listened to one of them, the Eroica, the third symphony, before we mm, recorded in Berlin. And uh, I said to him after the, we'd done the slow movement, I said, you know, Claudio, that's, I can't remember, it was quite a lot, three minutes, 30 seconds faster than your previous recording. And he kind of looked at me and said, really? I wouldn't have thought I did that any slower <laughs> before. I mean, it feels like the tempo, if you'd asked me, I would have thought that was the tempo I've always mm. done it. Mm. Um, I mean, that I find interesting. He never listened to his old recordings if oh, he yeah. re-recorded something. Oh. And Panini certainly doesn't. I mean, most artists listen once, about a year after the CD comes out, yeah. to get some kind of, not normally straight away. Um, but probably after a year benchmark on, on. But then they've done it. And then, yeah. and then they, they're, and they are often, if they have heard it, um, I remember, I'm trying to think who it was, I think Maria Joao Piro saying to me, oh, you know, I heard on the radio uh, someone playing the Sh uh, Schubert sonata, the first movement, and I was thinking, oh, this is terrible. I mean, he gets, you get, uh, he gets so slow and fast here and this and that. And then it was me, mm. you know. So uh, <laughs> their ideas change over yeah. the years, and oh. they're quite shocked sometimes how they played things. Yeah. So how did you get into record, record producing or that, that industry or job? Um, well, it was a yeah. bit of chance that I got into the, the recording industry at all. It wasn't something, you know, I was thinking of doing when I was studying. Um, I came to Germany to do postgraduate studies. And uh, there was an advert in the local newspaper. Um, but you also sang a musical, didn't you? Oh, I, yeah, I did lots of other things in Germany, but you, about, I was in a, working in a theatre, singing musicals and uh, writing and arranging some music for them because I was quite good at kind of arranging and I used to do jingles and things like that. Mm. Um, no, and there was an advert where Deutsche Grandpa was looking for a musician to, um, to become an editor, a tape editor. Well, we call, call them tape even now, but even though they're hard disk, but there's no really good way of, you know, have, is, the, is the tape running? You say it's mm. the hard disk running, I suppose mm. you could say that. Um, what, did, what did a tape editor back then do? You explained that before, and I thought that was quite interesting. Well, this was in 1980, and this is when Deutsche Grandpa started recording digitally. Uh, Decca had started a few years before that, uh, I think two years before that, and Denon, the Japanese company, a few years before that. And before that, on analogue tapes, where you had a physical tape running past heads, I mean tape heads, uh, they'd be running quite fast, and you'd have a producer sitting there looking at the score saying, OK, we want to edit here, mm. you know, or give a countdown, or say, OK, one, two, three, here. And the tape editor had a piece of crayon, mm. which he then slashed at the moving tape uh, gently and marked it. And then he could stop the machine, go back until he saw the white mark on the back of the tape. So he knew roughly where this place should be. And you can rock the tape over the tape heads mm. and you can hear the kind of ooh. And then you cut the tape physically. Mm. So you had one, two reels. On another machine, you had another the other reel of tape with the other takes on, or if it was on that particular reel, it was a nuisance because you had to cut, you used to ask how long a piece do you, do you think you're going to go, or you'd, you'd have to 
take the reel onto the other machine and go to the other take and do the same procedure. And then you put the reels back together on one machine and then actually glue the tape together with wow. kind of sticky tape on can the you, back. Can you hear that a lot on the recording? Listening well, I mean, it's interesting that the old tapes, uh, when I say old, the ones pre-1980, when they came up to be remastered, especially the ones that had been done in the 60s, the, the sticky tape on the back had rather, you know, the glue had softened. And through the, the tension of the tape running, the, the, the two splice, the splice had actually come apart slightly. Mm. So you'd hear a kind of whoop. A kind of blob, yeah, and so they all could be. Phys- I mean, they, what they did is they copied them all digitally, and then, and then they re-edited in the yeah. digital domain. Or in some cases, if they hadn't actually got rid of the takes, they they re-edited completely. They copied the takes oh, digitally wow. and re-edited. Oh, so yeah. it's quite a yeah. uh, a major procedure. Normally, that's not the case. So normally, once the master has been made and the the, the CD or in those days for analog, the LP had come out. After a year, the takes were destroyed mm. because wow. it took a lot of room yeah. in the library. Yeah. Um, so and they realised, so yeah. there were two people. That's the important thing to remember. There were two people. There was a physical guy. I mean, that was the, t- the engineer, mm. the, the sound engineer, not the balance engineer, doing the editing. And there was the producer sitting there with the score. And some one realised at that time it was revolutionary. Um, you would only need one person if you had a musician who could read a score. You didn't have to have the producer there. He could mark up the score and the the musician could do the non-destructive editing on mm. a digital machine, which is mm. basically a copying process, mm. um, which, of course, meant that you didn't have to have the producer going for weeks at a time down to Hanover, where our studios were, Deutsche Grandpa Studios, and sitting there and doing the just doing the editing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ah, you could go okay. off and do more recordings and make more money for the company. That's the so thing. you started off with that? I started off with that, yeah. and I did that, and DG were very good. Uh, though that was meant to be my job, they said, well, we don't want someone basically who doesn't know anything about the recording process mm. doing editing, and um, we'll send you to recordings uh, to help set up. In those days, you always sent three or four people to a big recording Mm. because the machinery was all very big. And even the first digital multi-track machines, like we had, I think, all the 3M and afterwards a Sony, I think it was called the 3324, uh, 16-track or afterwards 32-track machines. And they weighed 450 kilos, half a ton each. Wow. And you had two of them at each recording because of safety. Mm. I mean, just in case one broke down. And so you needed people around and they were big, you know, they needed to be operated. They had mm. to be cooled. They had to be cleaned after every tape change, a tape change which was 30 minutes on 3M. Oh, wow. Otherwise, yeah. the, 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 the heads got all dirty and then you get a lot of clicks and buzzes and things. It was actually a nightmare. And then the cables were very thick, you know, mm. they were big, heavy. Uh, 50 meters of cable was about 50 kilos. Oh, wow. It was on yeah. a big multi-core thing, drum. And nowadays, of course, you know, it's on a laptop. Mm. Uh, you can get as many tracks, 100 tracks on a, on a laptop uh, with a, mm. yeah, a USB external, you know, hard disk. Yeah. Anyway, so I was going along to these recordings, um, helping setting up. They were telling me why uh, the, I'd talked to the balance engineer. They, they wanted me to learn everything, really. Um, you know, how do they set up the microphones? Uh, mm. Why do they put the microphones there? And then you see how people work and they move microphones around saying, let's see if we can put them a bit closer here or further away there. Mm. 
and you get to as an observer you you get to see how much work and, and all the side of all the sides of that and that has been very good to me but it makes it easier to talk to your team mm. if you ask them to do something and you know that's going to take them half an hour mm. rather than getting annoyed because they say that's going to take us half an hour yeah, you know that point. um anyway so i did that for a couple of years uh then uh this was actually, I was employed, I was taken on just after Podigram, who owned Deutsche Grandfather at that time, had just made a lot of money with Saturday Night Fever. Mm. That was a big hit at the end of the 70s. And, of course, that's in the pop area. But anyway, the company was flush with money and they were expanding into this new medium CD and they were taking on staff. And um, a couple of years later, 1983, um, it was clear at that time the CD wasn't taking off as they thought they thought it would do. And um, the head of DG happened to be visiting us in Hanover because Hamburg was the centre for the uh, production. But in Hanover with the te technical facilities, he took me aside when he was down there and he said, you know, you should apply for a job in Hamburg in the press department. There's a, a position free for native English speaker we need someone there to do texts and marketing as well, a little bit of kind of help with the marketing texts mainly, because mm. at that time you used to send out press maps and stuff, yeah. you know. It was all analogue in those some days. Some people still do. Yeah, some people still do. <laughs> um, and nice articles and stuff, mm. informing the press why a recording was being made and what was special about it. Um, and because you're the youngest guy here and you don't have a family at that time. I wasn't married. and I, Oh, I was married, but uh, didn't have children yet. You hadn't quite made it yet. No. And he said, you'll be the first to go, you know, if they mm. do have to cut uh, staff and we don't want to lose you. So uh, why not apply for that? And I applied and got that job. So I did that mm. for a couple of years, mm. which was very good education because you see... The other side. The other them. side. Of, and, you you know, in the press department, you had to know what the contracts were all about, mm. Um you know, uh, why are we doing that? Is it part of a long-term plan mm -hmm. with that artist? And those times, of course, artists weren't just making one recording a year. You know, people like uh, Abada were doing 10 CDs mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. I think Bernstein was doing about eight. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned the Salzburg press budget, for example, where you Well, we had an song. immense amount. Of course, those were the days, uh, the glory days afterwards. I mean... Uh, even without the boom in the CD that had been expected, the LP was still going strong. Mm. Uh, DG made a lot of money, a lot of profits. And the Salzburg Festival was our kind of, if you like, medem or mm. can, like can, what is the to the film industry in Europe. Um, that's where everyone went to, to talk yeah, about yeah. their next year's yeah. uh, projects. And mm. we flew in artists who weren't there we flew in journalists from, I mean, we'd have private jets to bring journalists in from Paris or Hamburg to parties and things. And we had a budget for entertainment and press stuff in in Salzburg in, 2000, in 1986, mm. which was higher, I found out, or I saw it later, a couple of years later when I became producer, which was higher than the total A&R budget in 1990. So all the recording sessions yeah. and everything. Wow, that was quite impressive. I think yeah. it was like six million Deutschmarks at that yeah. time, yeah. just for Salzburg for six weeks. Wow, that was unbelievable. You know, with planes. and There was a dinner every evening, a yeah. party. I and mean, I was yeah. organising 
you know, dinners and parties and stuff, always with press. I mean, it was work. It wasn't mm. just, they weren't just eating. They were being fed, the journalists, but they had to, <laughs> they had to write nice things about us, I suppose. Uh, um, you what, know, sometimes a hundred people, you know. What made you go back into producing then? What, well, I didn't go into producing. I mean, I was, up to then, I'd only been uh, well, in this technical side. Um, yeah. And a lot of the work I'd done had been Claudio Bardo's recordings. Mm for a producer who drank rather a lot, a great guy. I mean, I don't mean because of that, a fantastic musician. He had studied conducting actually at the same time as Claudio Bardo with the same guy in Vienna, Swarovski, and um, was in DG, and he produced Claudio Bardo's recordings and Polini. And he, unfortunately, he he took to the bottle. And um, his scores that were given to me to edit were not very cogent mm. um, and clear. Often he'd written down takes that just didn't exist or he edits that just there was no way they were going to work. And so I ended up more or less editing myself. I mean, I'd follow his instructions as best I could, but I, mm. if I thought there was some take that was clearly better... Uh, I put it in. Mm. And I was going along to these Abado sessions, uh, you know, to help set up and stuff occasionally. Um, and often we, I mean, we'd always play in the new edit of the last recording sessions or the one previous, the penultimate one, to Abado at these, because, uh, you know, you have time. Um, and he often asked, well, didn't we do a correction for this place for the trumpet to be louder? And I could say to him, well, yes, but unfortunately there was a bad mistake in the horn mm. or whatever. Mm. You know, or I didn't take it because actually the tempo just it didn't work or whatever. Mm. And the producer, he died rather, I mean, he was only about 50. And rather tragically, he died, I think, the second day he went into a, into a kind of sanatorium oh, for really? alcohol oh. problems. Oh. And he was trying to get off the bottle mm. And they, they found him dead in his room, mm. uh, which was very sad for him, but very nice for me, because Claudio Bardo said, when they asked him and said, well, we'll have to look for a new producer for you, he said, I'd like to have this young, guy. young charming, beautiful, <laughs> handsome, witty English guy. And they were all shocked. They said, well, you know, but he's not produced anything. And Claudio said, well, I mean... Give him something easy, you know, some small thing. So he just, you know, he gets the hang of at least how to run a tape mm. sheet and stuff. And then send him along to my sessions. I'll have an assistant there, which he did, mm. uh, um, who'll keep an eye on him and uh, we'll see how it goes. And after that, uh, after that particular session, which was Schubert's second symphony, I remember, in Vienna, in the concert house, I think, we recorded the the uh, Claudio said that's great, and I don't need my assistant there anymore. Oh, and well. yeah. I started recording with Abado and Polini, and then a whole mm. lot of other people. Mm. So I was lucky. It's, yeah. it's lucky, but at some stage, I suppose. Well, you I, say I, that, but it sounds also like hard work. It's not as well. Easy. It was hard work. Yeah. You didn't impress Abado because you were a nice, charming guy, but because well, I don't know. <laughs> I always <laughs> thought so. <laughs> um. Well, you did that, or you have been doing producing for quite a long time now, executive and the actual recording producing, which well, is again a difference, isn't it? That... Oh, yes. I was a recording producer from 1986. And in 1988, or 18, I think 88, I mean. The thing is, when you're at recording sessions, you have a lot of time with the artists. Mm. You know, I was, I was with the Bardo 
for, I suppose, if you put it together, kind of three or four months of the year, mm. you know, rehearsals and recordings and stuff like that. I go down here, mm. performances of something that we'd be recording then a week or two later. And, of course, you know, he'd say, oh, you know, I'm planning, I'd really like to do, I don't know, uh, a Mozart opera or at that time when we were recording all kinds of things. Uh this or that, symphony and stuff. Uh, can you tell them at DG and see what they think? So I started to act, of course. I mean, this probably happens, or in those days, happened to most recording producers. And uh, the head of the A&R, um, Gunter Braist, um, liked the way I talked to Abado. And mm. sometimes I'd say to Abado before going to go back to Hamburg, I'd say, I don't think that's going to work, Claudia. You know, it's incredibly expensive. And, uh, mm. you know, it's a harebrained scheme to have one session on Monday and then a week later on Tuesday. And, you know, it's flying everyone in all those times. And, you know. Mm. And, um, and then uh, I was made, after two years, uh, his executive producer, which meant mm. that I negotiated contracts uh, mm. with the singers we needed uh, and then eventually actually negotiated all the contracts I also mm. um, did the main negotiations with Polini and then gave it on to the lawyer of course to, yeah. to finish okay. off the final details but to talk about the kind of repertoire under what conditions mm. you know was it fair that they should get an increase on in expenses mm. and mm. that kind of stuff uh, so and I was one actually there, there was one other guy who did that for a few years as well that he was both executive producer and recording producer but then I was the only person doing that then mm. they separated the jobs um, and they still have haven't they, they still have yeah. I, I think in a way, wisely, because, of course, there's a certain, at least in those days when we had so many recordings with an mm. artist, there was a, a danger, I think, of you becoming too intimate, if you like, with mm. your artist that you'd say, oh, I think it's a wonderful idea. I'll do all I can to get that through in Hamburg. Um, and then you have to go back to the artist and say, you know, they, they, no. there's not the money there. Or so that, that you... But is it fair to say that the executive producer somewhat has a more administrative job? It is the relationship and knowledge, but you are more sat normally in-house on a record label. Well, now it is, yes. And you have essentially more the executive job of sorting and negotiating and dealing with repertoire and budgets, etc. While the, for me, in my opinion, always the recording producing job is much more practically driven. Well, what do you think? the repertoire... No, I mean, it's certainly true. There's a much, of course, if you're negotiating contracts and stuff like that, you spend much more time on the phone and mm. writing emails and, and just arguing with people. Whereas mm. if you're a recording producer, you're sitting in a studio, Dealing normally with not, <laughs> yeah, not normally arguing with your artist, at least not too much. Mm. Um, but the job, the executive producer job, has become much, much, I think, in a sense, less interesting for me it's become much more varied because nowadays the way the life is first of all there's only one recording made with an artist every year mm. normally mm. simply because the market won't absorb more mm. because nowadays as you know in your business um you've just got to get you know the message out there there's a new recording out there why is it interesting for mm. anyone possibly you know, just getting the profile out there of anything is much more difficult. And the executive producer has to consider touring, uh, marketing. I mean, mm. we started. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go back to just becoming a recording producer, not executive. We started being involved much more with the marketing. What kind mm. of photos should we have? Should we mm. have a booklet text, which is more 
if you like, about the music, or should it be an interview with the artist? Mm. Who would be suitable for that? Should it be in five languages, or in four, or in three? Mm. Should they be separate? In the old days, DG got a, a French article written, an English article yeah. written, yeah, an Italian true. article. Booklets because, were expensive. <laughs> well, because the mentality is different. Mm. You know, the way an English person talks to an artist is different mm. to how a German. You know, yeah, the yeah. Germans want to know, you know, what are your thoughts behind this? And the English guy might want to know what did you have for dinner before you went to the sessions. I mean, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, there's just yeah. different interests, yeah. and it's a, it's a, that. So nowadays, I don't envy the executive producers now because they, if they are only making one recording a year with each artist, mm. there's much less room for making a mistake. Uh, in the old days, you know, if I was making eight or ten recordings with Claudio Abado, first of all, the, the CDs eight a year. That eight a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the CDs were always selling 100,000 mm. of each release. I mean, you know, the sales were much higher. And, you know, if you did one which was a bit off the beaten track that no one particularly wanted to buy, it was just absorbed as part of the, OK, we've got to keep this happy. This artist happy. He's a mm. major artist for us. OK, we'll do Janacek's uh, Diary of, uh, what's it called? I remember that was particularly expensive and lost a lot of money <laughs> because that's part of the deal of yeah. getting a bardo to do Hungarian dances with Brahms yeah. and stuff, yeah. you know. And uh, nowadays it's difficult. You, you, it's become more difficult because every they want every CD to make a profit. Yeah. And, and every penny is more looked Yeah, and of course, unfortunately, not every piano piece is the Alla Turca or not every orchestra piece is Bolero. You mm. know, if you only... If you only made made recordings of the pieces that you know people are going to buy, it would be mm. very boring. Well, that's what. It's and even then, of course, after the five hundredth Bolero, no one wants to buy well, that new nice. version anymore. And the next big step, essentially, or is also that you left DG to become freelance. Would you say that's essentially changed a lot the way you work, or has the job side of it changed a lot from going from being cushioned in a nice company? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I certainly feel I feel very happy about having done that because I don't have to be nice to people I don't necessarily particularly like. Though at DG, uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> well, you know, it's like going to any office. There are people you like more and then people you like less. I mean, at DG, I was very lucky that I did like most people. Um, but strange enough, I think I've become a better producer because I've learned to work with many more varied types of artists i mean one does have to say people don't understand this it's much easier to work with a, a top artist you know who's very good at their job than recording the local fire brigade band mm. because mm. the fire brigade band at the end of the day especially if they know that chris alder's coming along to do a recording they want to sound like the berlin philharmonic mm. and they don't I mean, one of my favourite recordings, but not for any of those reasons. It was just a piece I particularly love. It's Pelias and Melisande by Debussy, an opera, uh, a two-CD opera, um, in Vienna with a bardo. And I particularly enjoyed that simply because it's a great masterwork that I wasn't particularly familiar with. I'd only heard it once at the opera before. Uh, I enjoyed the singers. I thought, you know good singers. Um, mm. Claudio conducted it really well, I thought. The Vienna Philharmonic, which isn't a French-sounding orchestra, uh, got into that mode. They'd been performing it with him at the opera. We talked to uh, a lady who's an expert on, on Debussy, who Claudio always called 
Debussy's widow, because she always kind of said he wanted this, as if she'd <laughs> known him personally. Um, and she said that, you know, he wanted, and he had actually said that somewhere in one of his writings, he wanted the woodwind scattered throughout the orchestra, not all mm. sitting together. And so we did that in the recording sessions. Oh, wow. And in order to get a more kind of... Uh, a sound that wasn't where the wind was coming from over there and the yeah. strings and it was just the whole experience was really pleasurable and of course in the post-production I got to know this masterpiece mm. really well um, you know you really you just know everything about it mm. musically at the end of it terms of that you do require a certain amount of similar maybe to artists there's a lot of amount of practice in what you do or knowledge but actually a lot of it is also somewhere along the talent line of being not gifted but I think you I always associated a producer what you do with some sort of perfect hearing to a certain oh, no, degree I don't that. No. because I remember sitting next to you and you would tell me can you hear this and I'd be like uh-huh <laughs> but not really <laughs> but you know the, the nuances of what you detect or what you consider don't you think that is more well, I suppose, than just knowledge I, mean, I don't acknowledge because I mean I, I don't acknowledge comes into it very much at all mm. um, I don't think you have to know anything about a piece of music I think you could sit me down or any good producer with as long as it wasn't the most most complicated piece of I don't know Boulez notation or something mm. um and ask him to produce it and he'd do a good job out of that mm. you know that um I do think you have to have fairly reasonable hearing I mean I don't mean physically but you know you have to be able to hear what's important I think the um I think you have to be a diplomat I think you have to be able to to be able to become enthusiastic about music as a sensual, pleasurable experience. I mean, mm. it should be an emotional experience at the end of it. Mm. And that's what we should be looking for. We shouldn't be looking for perfect... It shouldn't just be all the notes right. Mm. Mm. You know, that, it'd be nice Some to kind of... package. And all. you can get even actually quite... You know, in a very musical way, mm. not by any magic, but just saying, you know, talk... I mean, you know, in another... In a film, you say, talk to me, baby, you know... Um, <laughs> You know, you've, we've got this all now. You can relax them too and say we've got it all note perfect. Mm. You know, mm. uh, so there's a, and the main difficulty in producing is finding language to describe musical. What's the right word? Musical criticism. It doesn't help an artist to be told this is very boring mm. here. Mm. You know, you've got to actually think why do I find it boring? 
Is it because he's getting slow or he gives all the notes an accent or mm. he plays everything very bar-wise or... Mm, I mean, there are certain kind of standard things. You could phrase it more, but that doesn't yeah. really, you know, that's a kind of standard, you know, kind of hackney, hacked yeah. line. Of course, you could always phrase something more. But what's that mean? You know, yeah. does that yeah. mean it should go to the end of the phrase? Should it have a go to the middle and fall away? It depends on the music. Mm, mm. Um, and and it's finding that language uh, with an artist and that they don't feel they're just being criticised. No one wants to be criticised. So it probably is maybe more the idea of an intuitive relationship to music that you have yeah, to I be think able it, to I think in, it's. I always say I'm a, I'm a, I, I try to listen like an informed amateur. Yeah, yeah. I just want to, you know, someone who's interested in music and wants the artist to, to perform to them yeah. and, and show me some, not some facet of that piece of music I've never heard before because yeah. that's just not possible, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we don't say to someone, you don't, you know, you can't show facets of the Mona Lisa you haven't seen before. Mm. But someone can point out something of, I don't know, I don't know mm. if this is a good analogy of the brushwork or something or of the lighting. You'd say, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Or yeah, yeah. No. it doesn't have to be something new. I think this, this looking for something new in a piece of music is a dangerous mm. kind of, uh, people are always saying this, but it's just not possible. Otherwise, you just play it twice as fast and that's new. Yeah. You know, if you play it much faster than anyone else ever played, it's new. But that doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> No, you just want someone to to show you some aspect of beauty. Yeah, yeah. So I had asked you earlier if someone wanted to go into the sector or in producing, and we what worked out that do? labels was probably not the easiest choice. Well, no, labels don't take on anyone. There are yeah. there are a few small uh, engineering companies. Mm. Uh, like there are a couple in Paris. There's one in Berlin, EBS. Yeah. Uh, the old DD people in in Polyhymnia in in. What's in, the one in London? I forgot. A classic sound. Oh, it's yeah. one of them. The Floating yeah. Earth. Yeah. I mean, if you can get a, a kind of, uh, what's it called? Uh, like an internship. An or... internship there. Yeah. You could certainly see if it's the kind of thing that would suit you. Mm. Um, mm. But it's very difficult. I mean, I you know I mean, I grew up in Kent. And I went to concerts uh, when I sat in London and, London and heard the LSO and Philharmonia and stuff with mm, mm. good and poor conductors, you know, the normal range of stuff. Mm. And But not often. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, I'd go to half a dozen concerts in a year, perhaps, mm, because, you know, mm. you couldn't afford more. And to go to the opera, or even on student tickets, I think we're going to Covent Garden kind of twice, three times a year. Mm. And maybe I could have gone more. I don't know. Um but there are other things to go to, like cinemas and yeah. discotheques and bars. Um, so, you know, if that's how you're being brought up, it, you, you don't really have any great worldwide standard to set your standard of excellence against. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, the NSO is a great orchestra, of course, you know, and if mm. they play with a great conductor, it will be a good standard. But you only hear them once that evening. And somewhat you have to com- be able to compare And they're playing in a performance. And I only learnt what what is achievable by going to sessions, first of all, as I told you, the first few years mm. of my time, with Leonard Bernstein or Carian, you know, in Berlin, Leonard Bernstein in Vienna, mm. Abado in at that time in Milan, LSO, Mm. where I remember him almost reducing the cellists of the LSO to tears because he was saying to them, that still isn't pianissimo. <laughs> and taking three quarters of an hour just of for course. a few bars until they were 
playing so softly you could see, because we can see on the monitor and the control room, their bow hands were shaking from the strain, you know, <laughs> playing this quite. He said, if you can hear your neighbour, it's already too loud. <laughs> and you suddenly realise, but when they did it, and they finally achieved this, there's something incredible yeah. when a whole orchestra, you know, 100 people is playing really softly. Mm. You suddenly realise, gee, you know, that's possible. Yeah. And now when I record, if you like, the local fire brigade, mm. and I'm saying to them, that's not soft enough, I'm trying to get them down. I mean, yeah. It would yeah, be yeah. nice. I get it. <laughs> but, you, but if you've never heard that, and you don't, if you don't have the chance of going along to these things that. now, oh, yeah. you know, the record companies have stopped having on-staff people. So where do you learn that? Yeah, good point. You know, you come out of college and you start, if you're lucky, you get a job as producer somewhere, uh, and probably only in one place. You know, if you join a a radio company like the BBC and have excellent orchestras or Mm. in Germany, NDR or VDR, you're only working with that one orchestra. Under comparison somewhere. And there's no, you 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 don't have that comparison. What is possible Mm. somewhere else? You know, how, I mean, the viola section in the Berlin Philharmonic you know, we used to always joke they put the same stuff as resin on their bows as the East German athletes used to give, you know, used to <laughs> take as drugs. You know, it's just another world. When you yeah. hear a viola section like that, you realise what a viola section can sound like. Yeah. And yeah. That all helps you afterwards as a producer when you mm. say to someone, when you want to criticise constructively, mm. you know, mm. the orchestra in Palmer. Mm. Hmm. Good. Can't think of anything more to ask you. Okay, so we're finished. So we're you finished. talked about now. Oh, sorry. Did it actually record? Well, that was Chris Alder and all his glory. If you're interested to get in touch with him or to see more of his work, go on his website, chris-alder.com. We'll be back next week with one of my favourite people in the whole wide world called Tessa Marchington. She's the founder of Music and Offices and Investec International Music Festival. She is somewhat of a superwoman who does it all, make it all happen and has two kids at the same time. Something like that. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And feel free to share, rate, get in touch with feedback. I'm always happy to hear from you. Have a great week.